0: What are the key trends in engineering and engineering education as seen from an industry perspective? What is the impact of digital technologies on how we collaborate and learn? And what does the future of engineering hold? In this episode, we discuss this with CEFI fellow Xavier Fourget of Dassault Systems. He identifies several key trends, including remote collaboration, technician operator innovation, AI simulation and digital twins, and generalised experiential learning. We discuss how these trends have emerged, their implications, and how they will help us face this century's global challenges.
1: Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by CEFI, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. I'm Neil Cook and I'm Natalie Went. So Neil we've spoken a bit about working with industry before on the podcast um, yeah. but increasingly I've become interested in sort of how engineering practice and education are similar and the ways in which they differ Yeah, and I guess that's mainly based on my experience of sort of graduating and not feeling quite ready for the workplace and then when I did my doctorate that was funded by industry so I got a bit of mm. exposure to sort of engineering workplace so as an academic I've sort of tried to work with industry to sort of do minor things like mm. co-create assessment and maybe inform some of the curriculum changes that might need to happen yeah um, but also experience the challenges associated with working with with industry mm. um, so I'm really interested to sort of hear what Xavier has to say about that kind of work what about you
0: Well, like many in engineering education, i previously worked as an engineer in various roles, and Mm. despite our aim to kind of make industry-ready graduates through challenge-based learning and what have you, um, academia and its learning environment, I think, is utterly different to what engineers do and experience in industry. They're completely different worlds, and I think we're increasingly called on to make our graduates as employable as possible. So Mm. I'm really looking forward to hearing about Xavier's insights of bridging these two worlds and those trends that he's identified.
1: So Xavier, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us.
2: Hello, Nathalie, hello, Neil.
1: So Xavier graduated as an industrial engineer and started his career at the French Embassy in Austria. He spent several years developing new digital processes to enhance collective innovation in the automotive industry. He then joined Dassault Systems and in 2003 created Dassault Systems Academy supporting skills in product lifecycle and three D design through global and local education and certification programs, reaching out into academia. Today, he works with policymakers. He's developed national educational programs in Tunisia and the United Arab Emirates, um, and currently works on industry-inspired learning centers, educational government programs, and collaboration with engineering education societies. He is founding member of the International Federation of Engineering Education Societies and Global Engineering Deans Council, a CTI expert, a fellow of both CEFI and ASEE. He is also a member of the consultative board of the UNESCO Aalborg Centre for Problem-Based Learning, has received Peter the Great Medal from the Association for Engineering Education of Russia and the Nikola Tesla chain of the International Society for Engineering Education. So Xavier, how did you go from being employed within industry and then decide to start sort of working with academia and engineering education?
2: Well, I'm I'm still employed by industry, Uh and uh, academia happens to be my my job in the company I work for. Yeah. Uh, How did that happen? Uh, I initially was uh, focusing on. uh, trying to solve a a skill problem we had in the company that was uh, 30 years ago, Uh which was that my colleagues uh, were talking to industries uh, without really knowing their life. So we had to develop their sense of how things work in different industries because they are not working the same in all industries. So I started developing uh, learning programs for uh, my colleagues in which they would be made familiar with the way people work, mm-hmm. first in the automotive industry and then in others. After that, quite naturally, I expanded this type of activity with educational institutions. Uh-huh. And... Uh, that became 100% of my job over time, to, yeah. to be the liaison uh, with uh, the academic world uh, for whatever subject that could not be just a commercial one, but establishing some more meaningful type of relationship with the uh, educational institutions, educational systems and governments, because they have something to tell in this universe.
0: So Xavier, Dassault Systems began in 1981 as a small company supporting aerospace engineering with computer-based design tools, and it's now grown to support not just aerospace and defence, but architecture and construction, public and business services, consumer goods, industry equipment, energy infrastructure, and much more on a global scale, including your work with academia. So could you tell us more about Dassault Systems and the impact it's having on modern engineering practice
2: the i, I, I would use an example uh, <laughs> from from the very early times of this company uh, it was created as you said in 90 in 81 uh, from a group of uh, it people uh, from the aerospace company the so aviation hmm. what uh, Uh, happened at that time was a a simultaneous uh, change in two domains. One was in the manufacturing techniques, the emergence of numerically controlled machines. Hmm. This was the result of early research work at MIT in the early Mm 70s. And the second uh, big change was that There were tools for engineers that could uh, replace the drawing boards by uh, creating representations of products, of things, Hmm. uh, the same way we did uh, on the old, good old drawing boards in (laughs) two dimensions. Yeah. And that was the problem because the the machines, they were uh, expected to be fed with 3D data. Hmm. And the the electronic drawings, they were uh, representing objects in 2D. Hmm. So the, this team started developing, they were not the only ones, the others did that also in other places, but they started developing uh, computer tools to generate 3D uh, computer representations of uh, real objects. Mm. Uh, because they wanted to connect this information with uh, the machine that fabricated them and producing the first uh, 3D uh, computer-edit design uh, tool. They had pioneered what became the spirit of the company, which is instead of improving a technology, let's first question it. Mm. And that has uh, a remained character of the DNA of the company, uh, which we have been cultivating over years, not by just trying to improve the technologies, but by evolving their purpose, trying mm. to, and that you can do only uh, when you talk to the people who will be using them, uh, which for us was the manufacturing companies. Uh, among them, there were giants that were investing a lot of efforts in asking themselves uh, these fundamental questions, such as uh, Boeing, BMW, Honda, uh, right from the early stages of this company's life, we had that chance of being connected worldwide with, mm. with large uh, manufacturing companies in very different countries.
0: That's one of the trends that we've um, experienced uh, over the last 30 years and in this episode we're going to talk about five of the key trends in engineering um, that you've identified over several decades from your unique position as someone who has this knowledge of engineering education as well as industry. So before we go into each trend individually. Could you um, maybe give us a view of engineering education when you first got involved with it and, and how you've seen it change since then?
2: Yeah, my, my first experiences uh, with engineering educators, a part of my own engineering studies, Yeah, the dialogue with them was a pure function discussion about what uh, the applications can do, cannot do yeah it was not so interesting because uh, we were not talking about uh, the purpose of uh, the tool within the learning journey of the students mm. that was way more interesting uh, for me at least more motivating and this is why uh, i started to attend conferences like sefi yeah. uh, in which in which the discussion would not be about uh, tools or uh, characteristics of these tools, but really about the purpose and about the method of reaching the purpose. This has uh, started, I would say, uh, uh, with my first involvement in an ASEE conference. Uh, That's the American
0: Society for Engineering Education.
2: Yes. Absolutely, which I thought was uh, the biggest forum uh, to discover if I wanted to open my, my eyes on, on this universe. Mm. And, but that was in 2006. Mm. Uh, and it took two years uh, for me to discover that there was an equivalent society in Europe. Right. And that then marked the beginning of uh, my involvement in, in CEFI. What has changed, uh, if I look back from that time, the... There I would say three things have changed. Engineering itself has changed. Yeah. Uh, students have changed. Mm-hmm. And of course, education has changed. Engineering has changed. Uh, I, 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 could ex- I will use a few examples in, in, in the rest of our discussion. Yeah. Uh, students have changed. You as a as educators experience that uh, in a more daily basis than myself. Mm. Uh, but uh, there are a few fundamental things that uh, happen in the brains and in the behaviors of students today that uh, are totally different from when I was a student, where we were students, or yeah. let's say when, when I was, because I, I think that was uh, way before your uh, <laughs> own studies. Uh, but uh, the way they learn, the way they, we speak about their attention span, we speak about. Uh, Uh, In the last years, we have started to see uh, the the emergence in students' uh, motivations of uh, uh, a a look, a a search for purpose. Mm. When I was a student, we were just listening what the teachers told us. We were not questioning Mm. uh, why uh, the teachers were telling that. Students are asking questions today and and fundamental ones about why. And i don't i don't think uh, it, it, the education system is uh, uh, totally ready to answer these questions uh, it will have impact on engineering education so the, the notion of engineering education itself is evolving to follow this new type of uh, audience and the way they, this audience works also should Adapt the way we bring our technology to education to reflect these many aspects of change in the learners. It's not just about the attention span; it's about uh, uh, the uh, social networks. The, mm. the notion of social networks as a, a universe of learning, of it's a formative uh, environment. Yeah. Well, I suppose you you noticed I'm French and by listening to my accent. this change occurred in the students, in the educators, in education itself, and of Mm. course, also in engineering.
1: So, Xavier, you mentioned, obviously, the, the three sort of big changes in terms of engineering changing, education changing and students. So I'm wondering now if we could sort of start to unpack some of these changes in engineering that you've seen. So the first sort of trend that you've identified is remote collaboration. So I was wondering if we could start off by just sort of unpacking what is meant by remote collaboration, how it's sort of impacted the way in which engineers work and therefore the sort of implications on education.
2: Yes, uh, you probably have seen pictures of uh, design offices of the 70s or the 80s where In large rooms, you you could see uh, engineers standing, not sitting, in front of their drawing boards. Uh Uh, And you had lines of drawing boards in the same room. They were were designing a car. They were designing an airplane. They were designing a ship. And then they had these papers, these blueprints, and they were sending that to suppliers who who were... Uh, doing the same, but for a subsystem of, of, of these big systems. And the suppliers did the same with their own suppliers, etc. So the, the process was very heavy. And over the the two last decades, this has totally changed. Uh-huh. We now speak about uh doing exactly the same, but with teams that are not co-located. Yes. And uh, this has, then, in, in some smart big industries, uh, led to uh, the dream that uh, to develop product faster, they could engineer nonstop, twenty-four hours a day. The one of the initial visionaries of, of this way of working was the the CEO of uh, Volkswagen. Because Volkswagen had uh, anyway offices uh, all over the world, and uh, he was uh, coaching a a group of high potential engineers inside the company. Uh, And her mission, the the mission of these people, was to so young people, was to imagine what it would take for this company if they would uh, develop their cars on three time zones. Uh, separated by about eight hours. Uh That was uh, what uh, led to the first car ever developed this way, that was the Audi uh, TT, a small car, but Mm. uh, uh, the first one of its kind in in this domain, where people did collaborate without being uh, together. And this experience if you want to read about that, I, I advise you to read a book I have in front of me, that is a, a, a bestseller from Thomas Friedman called "The, the World is Flat." Right. Mm. Uh, it's 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 a quite an old book. It 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 was uh, uh, it came out two thousand five, uh-huh. and uh, in this book, uh, Thomas Friedman was uh, collecting examples he had observed worldwide. Uh, of the globalization phenomenon. Uh One of his uh, chapter here is called From Russia with Love. And I read one sentence. Uh Using French-made airplane design software, the Russian engineers from Boeing collaborate with their colleagues at Boeing America in both Seattle and Wichita, Kansas in computer-aided airplane design. Boeing has set up a 24 hour workday. Uh.
3: So
2: that, is, that was the early time, the, the early 2000s of uh, a global uh, instant collaboration. Not so instant because when uh, Russian engineers uh, went to sleep, the result of their workday was in the computer, instantly shared with the people in the United States who uh-huh. came in the, in the morning and discovered. Uh, that what they had uh, saved the, the, the day before had been changed by Russians. <laughs> yeah, and the, you you have then to put yourself in the uh, brain of people who see their work changed from the day before by someone uh, else uh-huh. they will never meet. Yeah, and this this uh, for me was. Uh, a a fundamental uh, example of uh, how a new computer-enabled practice cannot be successful without developing the soft skills in the people who will have to exercise it.
3: Yeah.
2: What does it take? Imagine uh, this process requires you to accept changes that you did not decide by people who do, you do not know mm-hmm. and will never meet with, yeah. uh, who sleep when you work, who, of course, uh, do not speak the same language except bad English, yeah. which is a, a kind of... Uh, the, the, there are two Esperanto huh? ones. Have, we have bad English and we have uh, digital uh, representations as the Esperantos of uh, global engineers. So imagine you are in this situation. This requires a mental attitude yeah. that needs to be trained,
3: uh-huh.
2: and it's a challenge in educational institutions to uh, create the experiential situations by which students would feel what it takes when you are in such a situation.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, you have to mimic such a situation if you have no partner at, on, on three on two other uh, time zones. Uh-huh. So this is, uh, uh, remote collaboration has many other implications, but I wanted through that example to uh, have you feel that uh, the ramification of uh, digitally enabled technique are not just in the procedural uh, methods of work, yeah. but also in the mental uh, dispositions, The, the The mindset of people, and that is called soft skills. Yeah, that deserves to be a a subject of learning.
1: And have you seen um, any sort of places within engineering education where they've done that effectively, as in maybe replicated? Yes, um, that process.
2: Yes, you can imagine that uh, being uh, being obsessed by this uh, type of situation. I had promoted. uh, Uh, project activities in educational institutions Mm -hmm. uh, that would uh, provide students with those conditions. And uh, since uh, about 15 years now, uh, we have uh, witnessed uh, such experience up to a very large scale. I remember one on 23 time zones. Uh, almost impossible to reach a, a, a for a company, but that is possible for universities because you have them uh, spread across the globe. Yeah. The, uh, the, the languages were the, the native languages were uh, oh, 15 different langu- languages. Uh-huh. So that was a huge project uh, of which, and, and the subject was uh, uh, engineering the, the digital farm. What is the farm of the future? Uh, using different techniques, mobilizing different disciplines. Yes, because as a project, uh, it it was also multidisciplinary. It was not single disciplinary, yeah. as it is in real life. So, to the, uh, the complexity of uh, of having people spread across the planet, uh, you had to add the complexity of having uh, many different disciplines involved in these projects. Yeah. There is a, a, another collaborative practice that had been pioneered by Bombardier in, uh, in Canada that was called uh, engineering in context, because you are never working in isolation. And the idea was to uh, provide everyone an instant view of uh, where do we stand? Uh, if, if I have to design, uh, the let's say, a cable in an airplane, uh-huh. Uh, I need to know uh, how it will be fixed on the airplane. And for that, I need to see uh, the geometry of the airplane. And this cable is going from, from the cockpit to the tail. So <laughs> I need a big geometry of the, almost the entire airplane if I want to design my cable in the context of the of the mechanical structure of the airplane. So that means this happens at a time where Nothing is finalized yet. I start designing my cable. At the same time, the people who design the structure of the airplane start to design this structure. They are not finished. And I have to start. And I depend on them. So here we discovered another dimension of collaborative work, which is that engineers, in a collective effort, in a collective project, have to develop two very bizarre skills. One is to unlearn their natural tendency to show their results when they are ready. Uh-huh. And you can imagine in this situation you have to, to share your unfinished work yeah. so that others can at least start their own share of this work.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And the second, second, uh, second thing uh, classic engineers did not like is uh, uh, working based on unstable specifications.
3: Hmm. Right,
2: because I, I am to put my cable along this uh, airplane body or structure, and this structure is still changing every day. Yeah. So should I wait for it to be finished to start my own part of, of, of the design activity? No, you can. I must be ready to take the risk uh, of uh, driving my own work with uh, unstable specification.
1: It's like certainly very complex, like lots of different complexities that students have to deal with, and you. And, and,
2: yes, and, and of course, uh, this is also then posing a challenge to educators. Yes. Which is always the same. How to provide the experiential conditions uh, to learn these skills to my students.
0: Yes. Okay, Xavier, so that was remote collaboration. The second trend that you've identified is technician operation innovation. Um, Would you mind uh, unpacking this uh, trend and uh, telling us about it?
2: Sure. It's not so much about operations, it's about operators, mm. uh, technicians, people on the shop floor. When it was almost 10 years ago, we started hearing about industry 4.0. Yeah. We were looking at all the possibilities that were unleashed by new fabrication techniques, basically data-driven fabrication, yeah, IoT, etc. And... Most of the companies I had the opportunity to discuss with about this subject at that time were sharing that the overall processes, work processes, organizational processes to embrace uh, the concepts of industry 4.0 were requiring if they would be would have to be successful to change not only the way engineers work mm. but also technicians but also operators. Mm. Simultaneously, right. And the issue that was uh, immediately apparent to them and to me as well at the time was, we had, uh, we have worldwide basically three uh, different systems mm. uh, that are training these people. We have the, we have engineering schools, universities, we have uh, colleges for mm. technicians,
0: yeah, technical colleges, and, yeah. and
2: we have vocational schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh so if we had to bring these methodologies to these three populations, mm. the, the question uh was how to synchronize the modernization or the or the the, the refresh of uh learning content uh for these three levels mm. of learning. Yeah. And that means for these three types of institutions. Who have uh, entertained a, a very long tradition of not talking together? <laughs> right. They, yeah. they, it, it's it's the by system. The system mm. is uh, is designed in a way that uh, if you are uh, in a university uh, uh, and you have a time outside of teaching, uh, mm. it's your research that is taking you the rest of your time. Yeah. The, the, um, in vocational schools, uh, you may be interested in a new machine, but uh, you are not questioning the process. No. Uh in uh and in, in technician schools uh you are kind of hybrid uh, and, and you are not better placed to to look at uh, the three levels as a system hmm. to do so because we are talking about new methods new work processes new ways of doing things uh are complex they are sometimes uh related to science, because mm. uh, they are not yet fully mature, they are not a routine. Mm. Uh, a good example is additive manufacturing of uh, of metal. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not mature yet. The, the uh, A lot of research is still uh, necessary to make it a routine. Mm. The question, again, f- was how, uh, for me, as an employer, not me, my Xavier Fouget, but uh, one of the people I was talking to, I should at the same time change the the knowledge of my engineers, my technicians, and my workers, hmm. and they should align their their ways of working on a new methodology that is not yet finally invented. It's still so. Who has the responsibility of designing both the the learning? Of engineers and the method itself, that would be more with universities. Mm. That the places where you 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 can combine innovation in new ways of doing things, and teaching and, and, and preparing people to operate them in professional lives. Mm. But no one is doing that for technicians. No one mm. is doing that for uh, workers in vocational mm. schools. Mm. So. Uh, this is a, a profound uh, complexity of our systems mm. that uh, can be overcome. And here uh, I see more and more attempts to uh, uh, concurrently re engineer uh, educational content to align it with a new method at the three levels by forcing uh, the involvement of uh, educators of the three levels. Mm and researchers from uh, universities.
0: Hmm.
2: This is uh, particularly true. uh, Here I'm, I'm I'm French. So in France, uh, they have put a a system that I like, which is uh, a financial encouragement from the government to uh, create uh, systematic uh, clusters focused on one industry sector. Hmm. And in which you the, the government funds the work of consortia. Consortia composed of uh, higher education, technician training organization, continuing education, vocational mm. training,
0: yeah.
2: employers, industry federations, and all these uh, work. These stakeholders work together in creating uh, uh, the continuum of learning. Mm. So this is just an example. There are many such examples that are real uh, relevant for different industries. Yeah. This, but it's not natural. We are. This is no. a attempt, necessary attempt, to go against uh, the established uh, established uh, silo structures between the three levels of education.
0: Yeah. So from your answer, I'm, I'm envisaging this idea of. An engineer, a technician, an operator, as like steps, and you're you're sort of saying, "We these steps are not always very uh, helpful, and there there is this continuum. We need more of a continuum between yes, these."
2: Exactly, it's a slope. Yes.
1: <laughs> so Xavier, the the next theme that or trend that you identified was to do with AI and simulation, digital twins. So. Again, wondering if you could sort of detail the impact that you think this is having on the engineering profession, but also the implications of, of having that kind of technology on how we need to prepare engineers for the workplace and what that means for educators and students.
2: The central notion is the digital twin, the, mm-hmm. the virtual twin. It's uh, the, the, the concept was... Uh, Pioneered by NASA Uh when they were uh, flying a a spacecraft with uh, astronauts. They always had uh, a copy uh, of that aircraft on the ground so that uh, uh, in case something happens in space, an an incident, Mm -hmm. then they could reproduce it. Uh, on the ground copy and uh, try to solve it there Uh by involving uh, uh, the the right engineers, people who know how the thing is working, and uh, for them to invent a solution to that and and tell the astronauts what they should do to solve the solution. This you can quite well see in Apollo 13, the movie.
3: Uh
2: They are uh, doing exactly that because that's what happened in the reality. And uh, NASA quickly saw the limitation of this because uh, having just uh, one copy on the ground was uh, limiting the number of engineers who could at the same time uh, work on finding a solution quickly because uh, it's a question sometimes of uh, a few seconds. Yeah. Uh, you can also feel that in the movie. Uh, this uh, pressure of time uh-huh. so but uh, the, recognizing that uh, having a physical copy of the flying object uh, was a limitation it was a, a good thing but a limitation yep. and to uh, to enable uh, more engineers on the ground to access uh, the replica they formulated the, the notion of uh, a digital twin which is having exactly the same but in uh, in uh, the Computer representation. Yeah, that had a few implications, uh, such as what you do on the computer has to be uh, behaving exactly uh, in the same manner uh, it behaves in the reality, yeah. or as or as as exactly as possible. Uh-huh. And that has uh, led to the enrichment of computer representations by a lot of simulations. Yeah. Uh, then. Came to the ultimate scale, to the ultimate stage. Sorry, uh, where the physical object and the digital uh, representation of this object would be talking to each other Uh instantly,
3: Uh
2: and that was Internet of Things. Yes, that was connecting these two worlds. Uh, Internet of Things is doing two things. It is sending instructions coming from the digital world to the actual physical machine uh-huh. whatever machine it is and the sensors on the machine are sending back uh, signals to the digital representation uh-huh. so that they are always uh, synchronized uh-huh. and this has a, a multitude of uh, implications because it, starting with creating uh, the connection between the the three levels of stakeholders in an in a industrial process that I was mentioning before, uh, because all of them suddenly, once the new product and its production system are totally designed in the computer and totally synchronized with what happens in the physical world, when you have that, everything is changing. Because instantly, everyone can see where we stand, what is the problem, uh-huh. confront the problem with the intention, uh, the intention being it should work this way, and it works that way. Uh, what it, why is it so? You ha- the worker, the technician, they, the engineers, at the same time, have access to the digital representation and to the physical one, where the workers are instantly mm-hmm. so when the problem occurs if if there is a problem
3: yeah
2: and can react as a team instantly
3: yes
2: so that means the the, the virtual twin is a, a digital object that can be used by engineers by technicians and by operators in their daily life and now comes ai hmm uh ai is happy to find all these data existing because ai works on on data first and that will be uh, the next big change it is often said that ai will destroy jobs uh, another theory says ai will enhance jobs yeah we we tend to believe in that uh because we have a vision of the evolution of the uh, economic sector that is that um, all professions have the prof- the potential to be elevated. Uh-huh. And engineers have the power to elevate their uh, work profile to broader contextualization of their solutions
3: uh-huh.
2: to uh, entrepreneurship to uh, uh, looking at the business side of the technical problem, to be looking at the environmental side of the business system. So uh, that is the vision. It's that AI has this power to remove intellectual work that is of low value and elevate intellectual work of all stakeholders. And we have examples of that uh, that appear more and more. Uh, we are still in an exploration phase. Uh, mm-hmm. Universities are, and, and here, universities, engineering schools are really doing their job of uh, assess the implications of AI in uh, other techniques, other methods in the different branches of engineering. I like to cite one example uh, because For educators, the difficulty is now, uh, how do I do that?
3: Yeah.
2: And one of the obstacles today in the uh, uh, systematic or broader exploration of AI in uh, engineering is, uh, again, departmental, organizational in universities, uh, because AI is very much a subject of uh, IT people. Uh Uh, It's where they... The projects are the activities. The courses are located, uh, and not so much in all other branches of engineering that will uh, have a benefit from it. So the the challenge in the organizational challenge in educational institutions is to again break these uh, silos and establish bridges between uh, between IT and uh, other engineering disciplines.
1: Yeah. So, I guess what I'm hearing, I mean, in terms of the changes this has had in terms of education, I guess it's both in technical ability and and skills in terms of maybe students understanding the technicalities behind AI internet of things that that type of thing and sensing sensors, but also the complexity involved in decision making, having lots of data and information available, um, some of the mathematics, mathematics behind statistics, that type of thing, but then also this ability to work across disciplines and that more of those mm. those types of social skills that you you mentioned
2: before. Yeah, absolutely, the uh, yeah. it's um, this is why I am such a fan of uh, problem based learning and similar uh, approaches. Because they enable two things: they enable the, the overlapping of disciplines during the same learning time, yeah, and they enable the uh, experiential combination of the uh, scientific and the soft skills.
3: Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
2: During the same second, it, 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 it's it, it's really a, a time overlap because yeah. uh, nothing nothing is is more frustrating than hearing uh, the sentence, uh, the curriculum is packed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a sentence uh, that uh, as uh, an educator, uh, you may pronounce because uh, and in, of, often you cannot change that situation. So it's really a sentence for those who model the education one the education system as an entire system, but also the educational institution. So it's it's a sentence uh, that reflects uh, a call to action for the deans. It's a call to action for the leadership of universities. It's a call to action for the people who regulate the well the accreditation.
3: Sure,
2: but it's a reality. I'm I'm not telling. Uh, I don't believe you when you tell me the curriculum is packed. The, but we need to unpack it, unpack it, and this is a collective effort uh, between uh, many, many stakeholders. And I think industry has a lot to uh, how to say to, to do together with uh, the leadership of, I mean, not necessarily the leadership, people who model the educational system. And a part of the leadership, uh, a part of the big system above it, uh, there is one instrument that can do that. It's research. Uh-huh. Because research is uh, the formulation. Often, not always, but often the formulation of uh, uh, decisions that should be made at uh, a more systemic level. Sure. So, yes, soft skills combined with high skills and multidisciplinary. Uh-huh. These are the implications.
0: If we, if, if we are going to see more collaboration around digital models in in higher education and and students learning how to do that collaboration and speaking a, a common language a common modeling languages um that necessitates open standards what's your experience of um the standardization of this digital esperanto because many companies will speak a digital language but it's it's quite proprietary what what's your view on on that open open nature of standards
2: the uh, standards exist uh, that are not related necessarily to uh, digital representations uh yeah. the, the the we have the classical engineering design that is compliant to standard iso uh, din whatever yeah that say uh, Uh, this type of object has to be represented uh, uh, through this uh, convention, uh, what kind of line, what kind of uh, shape, etc. We have similar standards in the uh, description of uh, the behaviors of objects. Mm. These are all uh, established standards. So the, the standards exist. No one learns... The standard for itself, you always learn the standard in the context of doing something. Yeah, yeah. So the fundamental standards are there. Now we have another uh, dimension of uh, our industry-academia collaboration. Here, it's the speed of change. Yeah. the The time unit in in an academic context is uh, at the shortest time unit. The the Planck time is a. Uh, I would say the semester because you cannot change anything no. uh, or or very little during a shorter time frame the the plank time in 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 business in industry is is not predetermined it's it can be very short, yeah, especially when it comes to uh, technological evolutions where the uh, the capabilities of technology evolve. Uh, way faster than the standards.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: It's an issue if you if you are in the mood of I am an educator and I take the situation as frozen and I build my my curriculum on that. Mm. So I, I I I take a standard as it is, I take it and i i i provide learning experience based on this baseline but you can do also uh curriculum design in context and try to go faster yeah uh by uh, accepting that 90% of what uh you are teaching is stable over t- over a visible time frame in front of us mm but accept also that ten percent uh, will change tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, maybe obsolete uh, when you, or maybe uh, different uh, when your students will uh, reach uh, mm. the workplace. Well, for this ten percent, you can make it a learning subject. Also, mm. uh, how you uh, my my students uh, can better cope with the situation of this ten percent that will change. Mm-hmm. That will be a, a good good skill to learn for for them, uh, which is not limited to the standards in uh, in IT, but which is uh, about everything they do: uh, uh, regulation, uh, uh, new ways of uh, uh, fabrication, uh, how 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 techniques from from uh, the the uh, drug design can. Uh, uh, impact the methodologies tomorrow morning or are already mm. doing that in industry uh, without early warning, uh, etc. There is always this portion of unpredictable that uh, that is not standardized. No. And that mm, that is also a, a, a subject of skilling. So the next trend we're going to
1: look at is Generalized experiential learning. What's the generalized part of that?
2: If we try to uh, look at the engineering profession on on the long time, uh, at the beginning it was a pure technical solution uh, creation uh, job. Yes. Yeah. Then and that we this is what we uh, I happily uh, observed the. That, that we have reached some uh, strong maturity over the last years in problem-based learning, uh-huh. which is uh, not defocusing, but driving the solution creation through the problem understanding.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Asking why and not just how.
3: Uh-huh.
2: This I would, so the, I would call it the first age was technical solution. I, I am a pure technical person. Uh, Second stage, I I start to combine disciplines to uh, reverse my questioning, uh, asking why not just how to uh, extend my context. Mm -hmm. And that is the age of PBL, of uh, CDIO, of all Mm -hmm. these methodologies. But uh, what I see emerging also now is a third age. It's not generalized at all. That's why i the word generalized is not appropriate for me. It would be more emergence because it will become a, a general way of doing things. Experiential is the important word. And I understand why you asked the, the question, because there is a trend that many institutions have followed. It's experiential learning. Yes. That can take take multiple forms. But the 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 word experiential applies to in these centers is not so much to learning. It's uh, the nature of what students learn. It's not the how they learn. It's the what they learn.
3: Yes.
2: By the way, the word generalized has still a meaning uh, when we look at uh, engineering education on the global playground. Uh-huh. Uh, there are many places... Uh, where generalization has just well, experiential learning has just started. Yes, okay. Uh, in in Europe, in, in United States, I I know we it's quite a routine. But uh, when when I visit India, I don't have this feeling.
3: Yeah, okay.
2: And I'm looking at at education uh, globally, and uh, genuinely, I'm interested in uh, trying also to. Uh, uh, develop new approaches in, in, in places, uh, where they are not yet present. The, uh, word experiential is that is what I, I love to focus on. Yes. Because that is in the nature of what, uh, engineers do for, in the past, engineers were supposed to do this, the technical solution, uh, imagine it, make it. Uh, to a problem based on inputs that were called specifications, mm-hmm. it has to do that, it has to be this yeah. so this were, this was already a technical language uh, that was not questioning the context and what that was not even less questioning the purpose mm-hmm. in the last years, problem based learning techniques have uh, extended the context. Uh, by by encouraging multidisciplinary, by uh, uh, sending the student on site of where the problem occurs, mm-hmm. by doing uh, it was uh, it was a, a big opening. Now, when we think about technical solutions, of course they have to consider the context. Yes, but in that context is something very new. Uh, that is the experience of the people who will have to deal with your solution, Mr. or, or uh, Miss Engineer. Yes. Okay. So it's the consideration of the uh, usage of your solution that has to be a part of your of the universe in which you 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 develop your solution. You have to engineer not just the the car but also the process of people sharing cars. Mm-hmm. So it's all this uh, shift we, we, we observe in language between uh, making a car to a vehicle to a mobility solution. Now it's to a mobility experience. Yes. It's uh, what is it for me in your solution that really as an end user of your solution when it will be industrialized, Uh, will change my life.
1: I was going to ask, why has this become more um, an issue we pay attention to now, as in engineers have always designed cars? Why is it now we're more focused on the experience as opposed to the technology which has gone into just getting the car to work?
2: Well, the... There is one driver that no one can escape, that is climate change. Yes. We need to have less cars on the roads. Uh-huh. And younger generations start to be vocal about uh, yeah. these things. They are right to do so. Uh, because uh, it will be their life, not mine. Uh-huh. If by a smarter way of uh, sharing cars... Uh, uh, we can reduce our impact on on nature uh using less cars but better using them not owning them but sharing yep. them
3: yeah
2: adapting them to uh, their mission which is uh, uh driving in a city or driving on long distance by the way should we need uh, cars to drive on long distance uh, are other means not more appropriate uh-huh. uh etc cetera, et cetera. it's what has changed is that we cannot escape anymore to establish the connection between the why yes. and the how. Uh-huh. We
3: uh-huh.
2: could we could work in disconnect for a long time, and there are still many economic players, industry players, uh, who who works this way.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, I, I work. If you manufacture uh, gadgets uh, in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not be asking uh, uh, yourself the purpose of this work yeah. in the in the context of climate change.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, to to make that possible, uh, you have to engineer the experience.
3: Yeah.
2: The experience of mobility in a world where uh, energy is scarce. Mm-hmm where pollution is uh, reaching uh, limits mm-hmm. where material is getting difficult to find the battery material is is for instance a, a rare ingredient mm-hmm. etc you have to project yourself a little bit let's say in 10 years from now if you want to visualize the uh, the scenario of usage, which is what we call here the experience, Mm -hmm. in a a manner that is uh, uh, telling you what you should do technically to work towards such a situation. This is why uh, to anticipate these situations, the engineering tools you are sitting in front of needs to empower you to design not just the object but the experience of the object yes and this is why uh, we as a technology provider name ourselves the 3d experience company
1: and when so when you say it's generalized then what you what that word means is that it's widespread or becomes the norm right yeah widespread
2: yeah uh, to to understand to to anticipate the future, it's, it's always usual. Uh, it's practical. It's, it's convenient to look at past situations in which uh, we we were asking ourselves uh, uh, questions about what uh, will be the world in ten years from now. Yeah, and it's so when I speak about generalized, I can use. Let, let me give you an example. Today, all the all the industries are doing what they call a digital mockup. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not a virtual twin. It's, it's, it's just a prototype. Instead of making a prototype, you do it digitally. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, the entirety of, of the object, the production system, the life cycle of the object. It's just the object. Right. Digital mockup is, uh, is also a technique, an organizational technique that changes the sequence of activities in an industrial project. And accelerates everything. Mm-hmm. If I look at um, this technique, it was first imagined in a research activity of a professor in uh, the University of Michigan, postulating uh, that uh, one could uh, save a lot of time by not building prototypes, but by uh, uh, creating uh, digital representations of them and uh, generalizing techniques, uh, simulation techniques to uh, virtually test them mm-hmm. instead of uh, making a, a, a real one, which was uh, a very uh, a reasonable thing uh, to to imagine. And it took a few years until uh, the first companies started to, uh, to work this way, mm-hmm. uh, creating a digital representation of the prototype and testing the digital instead of the real thing, uh, saving time by by doing so. And the technique was uh, uh, pioneered in aerospace first, then in automotive, uh, and then in all the industries. Mm-hmm. Do less prototypes, but uh, do more pro- digital prototypes. Right. And this had this had implications on the on the entire organization process of uh, product innovation. And therefore, profound uh, profound implication on on the way people work in large organizations uh, making products. Mm-hmm. And then there was one episode in a conference, I remember well, in Berlin, where uh, an aircraft maker was uh, presenting a problem they had in front of an audience of uh, professors. It was a SIRP conference, uh, which is a an association that is focusing on this subject mm-hmm. and he was uh, telling them uh, we would not have had this problem if you would have taught them the practice of digital mockup and it took a few more years until this same practice became a subject of learning in some universities and finally in the course of this professor who first, 10 years before, that was a 10-year cycle, invented on paper the method. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a 10-year cycle. And uh, when I speak about the generalization of uh, experiential learning, because that was your question, uh, I would apply the same time scale with the hope that over time we together have learned that this can be done faster. Together means academia and industry. Yes, uh, that this can don't be done faster by uh, working together on these subjects early, and not just in research, but early also in education.
1: Okay, so I guess collaboration becoming more widespread, and also that we're really considering how things are used as 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 well.
2: Absolutely.
0: Zafie, thank you for um, coming on to the podcast today and discussing with us these um, five trends. We always uh, finish the podcast just by asking our guests to give us um, one last piece of advice or takeaway.
2: This is a challenging part of this discussion, <laughs> but let's take it. I think when we speak about working together across academia and industry and we have the common aim to advance it, to improve it, to make it more relevant for uh, everyone.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But we struggle to, we, we don't feel we do that in an optimal manner. Mm-hmm. You don't feel industry doesn't feel. No. That. So let's forget those who blame each other because this is not generating any, any solution. Uh, if I, if I would be, uh, uh, looking at the steps that are most needed, needed. It's to, uh, more include. So, so to, to be systematic, systemic also in the way we approach this issue. Mm-hmm. And being systemic means include the stakeholders we usually forget, which are government. Yeah. Which are funding agencies. Mm-hmm. I am optimistic that this can be done, because we have examples, you have examples, everyone yeah. has examples, but it's not, uh, if you look, for instance, at the innovation, educational innovation funding, it's always the result of a call for proposal that comes from somewhere, an agency, uh, probably aligned with the policy, mm-hmm. but it never comes, well, rarely comes from the bottom, where a combination of industry and academia would uh, advance uh, a subject toward uh, policymakers. And that is uh, the type of uh, collaborative uh, conversation that I would lo- love to have both with the governments and with the representatives of uh, all levels of education, that means research and uh, education, not not education in isolation. Mm -hmm. And that means also uh, uh, educators for all three levels I was mentioning before, the the system of uh, stakeholders operators technicians engineers to make it simple because only so will we uh, uh, progress in uh, defining the education uh, model that
3: will best cope with
2: the challenges we have in front of us as a planet
0: Xavier thank you for joining us today
2: it was my pleasure. Uh, I loved the conversation.
0: So Natalie, that was an interesting conversation. And I thought it was good to have an industry perspective. What did you uh, take away from that discussion?
1: Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It's quite unusual that we speak to someone who has got a lot of experience in both academia and industry and really understands both sides of that. and someone who's seen as many changes um, Mm -hmm. as we sort of discussed and I guess what struck me was that although a lot of these changes are very technologically based so you know we saw that now teams are collaborating across the globe um, and have to sort of engage in that a lot more um, use of AI and things like that Mm. a lot of the skills that Xavier is talking about are really social skills like learning to trust one another um and consistent with all the sort of themes we spoke about that seemed to be the the key message is is that we need to learn how to better work with each other to really get the best out of these technologies Mm. um like technology is really advancing our ability to do things as an engineer so really we've got to work on those more social skills to get the best out of them what about you
0: well i agree and i think you're right. There was a lot of talk about collaboration. And I remember that first trend being remote collaboration. Mm. But it seems that I think as educators, we need to think about how we do remote collaboration through this sort of digital space. Mm -hmm. So that was my, my takeaway was remote collaboration and thinking about these digital tools and digital languages and somehow trying to replicate... This sort of industrial mm. global collaboration in our local universities. I think mm-hmm. I think that was an interesting. I think I've seen a few projects. Mm. They're not necessarily mainstream, but how do we get collaboration across borders in our curriculum? I think that would be uh, my takeaway.
1: Yeah. So as ever, thank you for listening to this episode today. We hope you've learnt um, as much as us from it. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to be a guest or there's a particular topic you'd like to hear us speak about on the podcast, please do get in touch.
0: Okay, so thanks again for listening. And remember as well, you can go to the CEFI website where you can read some show notes. Um, Every episode that we do on the podcast has these show notes which will go into more detail about the discussion and provide you some links to references um, so you can do some background reading on the topic until next time take care
3: bye